a pleasure to be here with you all. It's always good to come home uh, and uh, enjoy being here and with mom and family. So thank you so much. Um, I'd like to just take uh, a few moments before we get into the sermon to just publicly thank the Lord for his kindness and graciousness to us, demonstrated by your prayers and your support over the past year since we've been here. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. F- just so thankful for what the Lord has done and hope that you would continue to pray for us as we are um, continually in need. And I'd like to just take a, a few moments uh, to give you a quick update as to what we're doing, and I'll do it in the form of just kind of giving you our three primary prayer requests. Um, number one, uh, my wife is due to give birth in three weeks um, on May 9th um, to our second little boy, so if you could be praying that he's not born on the grapevine on the way home, that would be fantastic. Um, but... Uh, If you would just be praying with us that the Lord would give us great wisdom in raising him to be a man of God, uh, that he would call him early to salvation and uh, obviously have his hand upon mama and baby in delivery, if that would be his will. The second thing, just as far as our institute, it it appears in the days to come that our institute will be growing exponentially between now and September. Uh, By the grace of God, we're going to be starting a online uh, program uh, starting in September and we didn't know when we decided we were going to do that, what the response would be, but we've just had a massive uh, outpouring of interest all over the United States and all over Latin America, uh, so we're trying to get our act together uh, to get everything ready by September, um, and if you would just uh, pray with us that the uh, Lord would give us great wisdom in getting that all ready and figure out how um, we're going to uh, receive uh, men and Spanish-speaking pastors from all over the world in countries that are financially very different and how we're going to scholarship them and all that kind of stuff. So I thank you for your prayers uh, there. And finally, um, since so many of you do pray for my health, and I thank you for that, um, I do have an aortic aneurysm. I do need open-heart surgery. I don't know when it will be. Cardiologist uh, scans me every six months or so, thinks it could be tomorrow or in two years. Um, but that's kind of our window, and we're just waiting for the Lord's timing on that. Um, and when it happens, of course, we'll communicate with you guys, and, and we'll thank you for your prayers. But we're just trusting um, that the Lord's timing will be perfect as it has always been. Uh, we thank him for that. Um, transitioning now into uh, the Word of God, the Gospel for Life uh, is the name, I guess, of the, the current series. Um, and as the title of the book that uh, is being given out, Um, The gospel is the good news, that God is who he says that he is, and he does what he says that he does. Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, forgiving thousands, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And in Jesus Christ, that forgiveness is sovereignly and graciously and freely given to all who will repent take up their cross and follow him. The question that I would like to lay before us this morning is, how do we daily and responsibly live in light of God's sovereign forgiveness? And I think it is a question that is uniquely answered for us in the book of Malachi. Malachi's last book before the book of Matthew, the end of the Old Testament. God's sovereignty His control over the universe is perhaps one of my favorite doctrines. God is great. He rules and reigns how he pleases in all his creation. 
Nothing occurs outside of his control, whether good or evil, whether hard providences or evil providences, hard providences. God takes responsibility for every detail, every sparrow that falls, every child that dies, every bloody war, every thankful heart. Yahweh gives and Yahweh takes away. Amos cries out, does evil come upon a city unless Yahweh has done it? In Isaiah we read, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I am Yahweh, there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Isaiah says it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. He measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's the immutable, invisible God, the blessed and only wise sovereign. He's immutable, invisible, king of kings, the lord of lords. He alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him nor can. To him be all the honor and eternal dominion. His wisdom is beyond our comprehension. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. His glory is something that he reserves for himself. He will not give it to another. He has all power, all wisdom. He is perfect, and he never, ever, ever changes. I think in part, that is why I love the Old Testament. Because the God of Adam, not this one, but the original... I'm getting there, is the God of Abraham, is the God of Isaac, is the God of Jacob, is the God of David, is the God of Daniel, is the God of Adam Bailey, is the God of Paul, is the God of Josiah Grauman. There is no variation, no shadow of turning. And theology like this is what I love. Amidst all the horrible change and mutation that exists on our sin-infested planet, God does not change. He is the immutable rock with whom we can find rest and stability. What wonderful truths. We don't don't experience pain and we don't experience trials from a God who wishes he could help us more. We don't experience trials and pain from a devil who wants to hurt us. We experience it from the hand of a loving father who does everything for his glory, which is our good. However, this morning, I'd like to consider a tendency a tendency that exists that perhaps if our theology is a little bit green, a little bit unripened, and we only think about God's transcendence and his sovereignty and his omnipotence and his immutability, our perspective about God can very quickly turn into something cold and unfeeling. When we think about the fact that he sits above the circle of the earth, that we're like grasshoppers in his sight, we begin to think that Perhaps he's distant, out there in space somewhere looking down upon us. And unbeknownst to us, the the doctrine that should be so precious to us can turn to thoughts of total despair. What should have wrought wondrous praise from our lips can often produce the opposite. When we think that God doesn't change, that he's an immutable sovereign, we think that we're cast to and fro by the wind, slammed by the waves of this wicked world against the immovable perhaps indifferent rock of God's sovereignty, bloodied and bruised faces and 
perhaps the worst part of it all is that we think God feels nothing because he is immutable, changing not. Malachi 3 is a critical, critical text for us. For in it we find God's description of his changelessness and our relationship to it. How is it that we could worship an unchanging God with a God that has a will established before the foundation of the earth, every step I take, every thought I think, all determined long ago, long before a word is on my tongue, David says, you know it completely. How is it that God can be like that and yet simultaneously be a God who responds to Israel and to you and to me in a very real way? This morning, I'd like to look at three points from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, that I think can help us to live God's gospel. Number one, to recognize God's immutability. Number two, to recognize our mutation. And number three, to recognize God's mutability, the aspects of God's workings that do change. If you have your Bibles with me, I'm going to read for us from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? I'd like to take just a few moments to remind us where we are in the book of Malachi, in chapter 3, because there's a lot of history that has taken place from Genesis to Malachi. Um, Remember... Uh, Israel, after being uh, divided into two nations, the southern and northern tribes, the Babylon comes down by the discipline of God and takes them into exile into three phases. And 70 years later, they come back in three returns, three different phases. Come back with Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then Nehemiah. And these three men really do reform the people well. They rebuild the walls. They have two mass divorces. They rebuild the temple. Um, and things seem to be going well. But then again, they get comfortable in their paneled houses and in the blessings of God, and they walk away. And perhaps the worst part of it all is that this time, their sin kind of goes to the next level, and they begin to deny their own sinfulness. They claimed that God was the cause and the reason for their trouble, um, and that he's the one at fault. And there's a pretty clear outline, a pretty clear pattern that we see throughout the book of Malachi. Basically, it goes like this. God tells them the truth. He makes an accusation against Israel, but then they flatly deny it, accusing God that he's the one at fault, not them. God makes his case that that is not the case, that he loves them, and tells them Messiah is coming quickly, and he's going to right all wrongs. So let's uh, step back to Malachi chapter 1, and we're just going to fly through these first three chapters and uh, kind of get our bearings here. Malachi 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but they deny it. But you say, how have you loved us? What a question. 
God then explains their sin, that he's going to make it right. Same pattern, verse 6, Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor, says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you, another denial, say, how have we despised your name? God's explanation, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you, denial, say, how have we polluted you? Explanation, by saying that Yahweh's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? So God makes an accusation against Israel. They deny it, accusing God that he's the one at fault. God proves that's not the case, tells them Messiah is coming quickly. Fast forward to Malachi 2.17, and this will be the immediate context of our section. Malachi 2.17 says, You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you, denial, you say, how have we wearied him? Obviously, implication, he's the one wearying us, right? Not the other way around. Explanation, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Very unwise and self-condemning question to say to God. Well, as per the pattern, God's going to respond. Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3, Messiah's coming. It says verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts, but who, are, can, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. You want a God of judgment? You want Messiah to come and right wrongs? Just wait. He's coming, and he is coming after you. Three points, God's immutability, our mutation, then God's mutability. So with the accusations still ringing in our ears of chapter 2, verse 17, where is the God of justice? God responds quite graciously and quite patiently in verse 6, right here where I have always been. I do not change. I am the same yesterday and today and forever. I, Yahweh. Just hearing his name should have made the point very clearly. Yahweh is the great I am, the generational God who keeps his promises to the sons of Jacob throughout all time, throughout all generations. And just hearing his name should have brought that to remembrance that his promises are irrevocable. Should have known that. But when they looked around at all the injustice and the pain that they felt in their lives... God appeared distant, like he had abandoned them. Have you felt like that before? I know I have. Many days crying out accusations against God, wondering what kind of selfish, egotistical, narcissist of a God would make us suffer just for his glory. Pain and trials disorient us from reality, and we need his word to bring us back. And notice God's response. He says, right, I do not change. Same word used throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.36 is an example where Israel changes. 
She changes her allegiance first from Israel and then to Assyria and then to Egypt and then whatever seems best in the moment. God's not like that. God's not like that in his being and God's not like that with his word. Psalm 89, 34 says, I will not violate my covenant or alter, the same word that we have in Malachi 3, or alter the word that went forth from my lips. God does not change. I guess the the question here in the context in verse 6 is, why is it that God's changelessness, I do not change, proves specifically that he's a God of justice, that he's a just God? If injustices were taking place, and God is the sovereign creator, the sovereign ruler of the world who takes responsibility for everything that happens in this world, does that not make him unjust? God basically says, wait a minute, You, you want me to demonstrate justice? You think that I've changed because you haven't received justice? That, you know, I used to be a God of justice during the time of, you know, of David and Solomon and during Moses, but now I'm not anymore. Because you're not prospering like Israel prospered during those times. Look, if you receive justice, you would be in hell. And my immutable promises, you sons of Jacob, calling to remembrance the promises made to the fathers, these promises are the only reason that you haven't already been consumed by my wrath because you have long since deserved it. One commentator states, ye are mistaken in inferring that because I have not yet executed judgment on the wicked, that I am changed from what I once was, namely a God of judgment. Yet ye yourselves, being not consumed as ye have long ago deserved, are a signal proof of my unchangeableness. The thing to do to a nation as wicked as Israel would be to wipe them out. And the only explanation for why that hadn't already happened is what? Because God does not change. God does not make a promise to a people and then forget it and then abandon them. Unlike what Israel thought, the just thing for the God of justice to do was not to be like them. It was to keep his unchangeable promise to their fathers. Hosea 11.9 says, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man. God wasn't going to commit or want them to commit the sin of Psalm 50, 21. You thought I was altogether like you. I will rebuke you to your face. It's a serious sin to think that God's like us. Before moving on to point two, I'd like to just make a quick theological aside and ask the question, when the text says here, I, Yahweh, do not change. To what does he refer? To his actions, to his character, to his will, to his being? We're going to talk a little bit later on about the aspects of God's dealings with us that do change, right? God the Son became man, right? A sort of change, and yet he remains the same. So, It's important to define here what aspects of God's being do not change before we get into point three. God's character, God's promises, God's decree, his knowledge, his essence. When we talk about God's being, these things are unchangeable. In his being, he is perfect and he is immutable. 
His actions may change. He saves some, he judges others. But he himself cannot change. We must not be tempted by the modern, modern wannabe evangelical idolatry that goes around the United States by men like Rob Bell, Love Wins. I don't know if you've talked about that or heard about him. A man who says that hell doesn't exist, that the atonement is just a good example for us, etc., etc. Right? And says that our concept of love wins over God's word. That is foolishness. God is mightily beyond our pitiful brain synapses. He is sovereign. He is just. Hell is real and it is terrible. And if I don't understand something about God or God's ways, with Job I must stand though suffering in the ashes and I must put myself under his sovereignty and worship, affirming how much greater he is than my mind. And say with Job, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways and how small a whisper do we hear of him. Let me ask you, has there ever been a time in your life, trying to apply this first point that God does not change, has there ever been a time in your life when you felt God to be sweet? A time like David's reign, when there weren't trials besieging you from every side, and you danced, as it were, with David and tasted the goodness of God and his promises. You looked ahead with great hope at seeing his face. You were filled with tears as you sang about the cross. But now... Perhaps not so much. God is the same right now as he was in the most enraptured moment of your Christian life 20 years ago, 25 years ago. He does not change. He is just as sweet today and tomorrow and forevermore as he has ever been. And so just like with Abraham and Israel and the promises that God made to them, if God loved you before the foundation of the world, then he will love you tomorrow and forevermore because he doesn't change. So point one, we recognize God's immutability. Now point two, God doesn't change, but we do. We do. Recognize our mutation. Verse seven says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. What a colossally gracious understatement to the people of Israel. There's some debate amongst the commentators as to who the fathers refers to if we're talking about the patriarchs or perhaps the Exodus generation. But quite frankly, it doesn't matter where we start. Um, Israel turned away. So let's back up to Abraham. It's 2166 BC. Abraham laughed at God's promise to give him a son. Isaac tried to go against God's promised to bless Jacob because he thought he was a mama's boy, so he loved Esau more. Jacob doesn't learn the lesson. He loves Joseph more than all of his brothers. They're in a sort of disciplinary incubation to create a nation in Egypt for 430 years, and then Moses brings them out. God demonstrates his mighty outstretched arm in many plagues and blood and frogs and darkness and hail and annihilates the firstborn of Egypt and parts the Red Sea, destroys the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea, leads them with cloud and with fire and in full view of God and His glory. Days out of Egypt, they say, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. 
I want some meat. Incomprehensible that after watching God annihilate Egypt in the plagues, they bring the Egyptian idols with them across the dry land of the Red Sea, Ezekiel 20, and days into the desert grumble, I would rather be a slave of Pharaoh than a servant of Yahweh. They refuse to finish the conquest. They're lazy in God's blessing. And then God brings the judges. But they're not so righteous either, are they? Samson, with his prostitutes, Jephthah offers his daughter as a burnt offering. Then God grants them graciously kings. Saul refuses to obey. David's a king after God's own heart, and he's an adulterous murderer. Ahaz offers his son to Molech through the fire, and Manasseh is worse. Worse than even the Canaanites that God brought Israel into the promised land to remove. And all this time, as God had promised in Deuteronomy 28, he would discipline them in love, then they would recognize their sin, and then he would bless them again over and over and over. The process repeats itself. In Deuteronomy 28, God sets through kind of the chronology of Israel and says, here's the pattern. If you don't listen, I'm going to bring all these curses upon you. And he goes through, you're going to disobey, and I'll bring pestilence and famine and disease. If you persist, I'll shut up the heavens like iron, and it won't rain. If you persist, I'll send locusts. If you persist, I'll bring a nation to besiege you, and you'll eat your own children in the siege. If you persist, I'm going to have them take you into their land in exile. And Israel goes through the process many times. There's drought. They repent. God forgives. They're besieged. They repent. Jesus comes and annihilates 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and Sennacherib returns to Nineveh with his tail between his legs. And then in 586 B.C., they won't listen. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, and they don't listen. God brings the Babylonians to Jerusalem. They eat their children in the siege. He takes them into exile, and then they cry out, forgive, forgive. And 70 years later, Daniel gets on his knees, and he prays, and God returns them to the land and blesses them. They rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, and then... They get into their paneled houses and they forget. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside. What a monumental understatement to the persistence of Israel's sin. That at this point in their history, 1,500 years of consistent, constant, continual rebellion. And what a statement to the indelible promise of God who does not change. That he would say at this point in their relationship, 1,500 years of all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He would say right now, even now, even then, return to me and I will return to you. And he's still waiting. Offer's been on the table for 2,500 years and he's still waiting until Romans 11:26. all Israel is saved. And notice this is actually quite worse than this. Notice in verse 7 the gall of the Israelites. God says, return to me and I'll return to you. And they say, oh, thank you. Man, we, we needed some help here and some direction. And they say, how shall we return? Now, some commentators completely missed the boat here and see Israel sort of humbly seeking God's information. Like, okay, I want to return. How, how do I do that? How shall we return? N no. No, verse 13, a couple verses later, talking back about our section, Yahweh says, your words have been arrogant 
against me. Right? In the context, Israel saying, wait, 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 us return? How shall we return? This is a straight-up denial. We're holy. We never left you. You abandoned us. Where is the God of justice? It's a very strong accusation. And I pray for me and for us that after thinking through the history of Israel's sin, that we're not thinking, man, Israel is bad. Man, they're a bunch of wicked dudes. Glad I'm not like them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he does a similar thing that I did and walks through Israel's history. And then he says this, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We have a history of sinning just like Israel. And a bit of application, the first, very first step in repentance and therefore in gospel living is recognizing that we have sinned. We have left him. And we need to be quick to repent. He, doesn't, he hasn't moved. He doesn't change. He's immutable. As a Christian, if I feel like God is distant, what's the reason? I left him. Adam and I are having a conversation here, and we're kind of chatting about things. And as we're talking, I'm like, I'm kind of messed up. I'm feeling kind of cold here. I feel like you're not really paying attention to me. And you just, Why are you dissing me like this, man? Like, I need your help right now. And where are you? Like, why, why have you abandoned me? And Adam's over here thinking, like, you seriously can't be that unintelligent. <laughs> I got the crutch here with my knee. I haven't moved. Yes, yes, we can be that unintelligent. Our hearts are amazingly deceitful. Amazingly deceitful. Where is God? Well, he doesn't change. If it feels like he left us, it's because we changed. We walked away. So the question that should be on our minds is how do we return? We are sinners. How do we get back? Well, God tells Israel, return to me, and then he lays it out for them. It's very simple. It's obedience. I don't want to get into all the details of verses 8 and following. We're just going to read verses 8 through 12, and then I just have a few comments. How shall we return? And God answers, will a man rob God? Yeah, you are robbing me. Another denial. <laughs> but you say, how have we robbed you? Like they don't owe anything to God. And your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field that shall not fail to bear, says Yahweh of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says Yahweh of hosts. Now, I, I trust you understand there's context here. Israel is in a theocracy with Yahweh. Tithes are part of the governmental system, much like taxes are today. In the Old Covenant, God promised Israel physical blessings if they would obey him. 
And all the nations were to see God's magnificence through the physical blessing of his obedient people. The queen of Egypt would come to behold the gold of Solomon's temple. That's not why we bring people to Grace of the Valley. I don't think. We do not have those physical promises today. We are not in a theocracy with Yahweh. But much remains the same. They had a commandment from God. We have commandments from God. They disobeyed. We disobey. They lost their privilege. We lose ours. How do we get them back? Well, just like Israel, by obedience to the promises, to the commandments. You say, I don't feel the blessing. Then obey. I don't feel joy in my salvation. I think I'll read a Piper book. That was a joke. (laughs) I know, we love Piper, but obey, (laughs) repent, and obey. Joy comes after obedience. David cries out, return to me the joy of my salvation. And by God's grace, many did so. Malachi 3, verses 16 and 17 says that those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another. Yahweh paid attention to them and heard them. The book of remembrance was written before him who feared Yahweh and esteemed his name. And he responds to them, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as this man spares his son who serves him. Well, how do we apply this, this second point? Well, point one, God doesn't change. Point two, recognizing our mutation helps us live the gospel because just like Israel, the first thing we need to do in order to draw near to God is to recognize that we're the one who sinned, not him. We have sinned and we return to God in our obedience. It's our responsibility. And I'll I'll repeat a little bit of my application from from point one. If his grace was sweet yesterday, but not today, it's because you have become calloused to his grace. You have become insensitive to his mercies. They are new every morning. They are there. You've missed them because you've sinned. Repent and obey that the joy of your salvation would return. Finally, point three, to live the gospel, we must recognize (coughs) God's mutability. I'm not going all wacky theologically on you here. I just want us to notice something in the text, the way that God describes himself to us. Returning to verse seven, notice that it says this, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll be waiting for you right here. The sovereign, immutable, changeless God You left me, you can come back here on your knees. I will not move because I do not change. No, obviously it does not say that. It's very emphatic in the opposite direction. I will return, says Yahweh Savaot, Lord of hosts, the sovereign of the celestial armies. I will. Shuv is the verb in both instances. Return, and if you return, I'll return. The question on our minds is trying to fit these two verses together. This word returns is the word most often translated repent. Repent and I'll, hmm, I'll repent. 
I don't want to get too overly theological in discussing what the commentaries do, if this is anthropopathism, if this is figuratism and such, but let me just say this. If we let our theology get in the way and we say, well, God, God doesn't change, he's immutable. God isn't really returning. He had a plan from before the foundation of the world, and we just kind of throw the statement out as meaningless. Right, could God have said that? Right, what are we accusing God of if he's not wise enough to communicate truth to us? Right, the Holy Spirit is masterful in language, infinite in vocabulary, and he did not describe God to us as being unchanging and unmoving. He described him as being unchanging and returning. But God's communicating something to us, and we must not miss it. Moses prays, God repents many times in the Bible. God wrote the scriptures, and that is his description of himself. We simply cannot say from a biblical perspective that God is distant and cold, not involved. That's not the picture that God has painted of himself for us. However, how is it that we're supposed to understand this change, this returning, in light of the fact that in the previous verse, it very clearly states, I do not change. So, I do not change, but I will return. So how do we get those two statements to, to work in our minds? God is obviously trying to communicate something to us here in this paradox about the relationship between his transcendent immutability and his imminent closeness to us. We can't miss it. And, and let me remind you that this sort of apparent contradiction in our minds is a very common way for God to communicate something about himself that is beyond our understanding. He is three, and he is one. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. God elects us. We are responsible for choosing him. We don't get, a right, we don't get at a right understanding of these truths by just flattening them out in our minds, by choosing one or the other. Either you're a Mormon or you're a polytheist. Like, God, you know, God's one or God's three. No, it's both. Both. So, got to let them live in harmony. Like Spurgeon says when asked about election and responsibility, he said, reconcile them. I never reconcile friends. I love that quote. No reason to. Genesis 6, 6. Yahweh repented that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. God cannot repent. God repents many times in the Bible. So either God is flatly contradicting himself, not an option, or he's communicating to us in a language that we can understand, something that without this terminology would be impossible for us to get. Genesis 6, 6, God repents, and it grieved him to his heart. Does God have an aorta? Physical heart and arteries and valves and blood? Don't think so, John 4. He's a spirit. However, that doesn't mean we just throw the whole statement out as meaningless. How dare we insult God's communication like that? God in his great love for us speaks to us in our language, in our term. He repents. It is real, but he doesn't repent like us. He's not a man. This is one of the, as I mentioned earlier, primary sins of the Old Testament committed by the Israelites. Psalm 50, 21. You thought I was like you but I will rebuke you to your face. God's not like us. He does not change, but
But if we return, he'll return. So two things we need to affirm here. First of all, God's nature is changeless. But he does change his actions in accordance to his nature. And that is real change from our perspective. Just stick with me for a few moments here. I am a seminary professor, and so some of that often leaks out here. But on the one hand, we must confirm God's sovereignty. His plans do not change. If they seem to change from our perspective, then of course he had that change planned from before the foundation of the world. There's, not, there's never a plan B with God. Scripture is very clear on that. All right, Psalm 33.10, if you want to jot it down, says, Yahweh foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of Yahweh stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. Hodge writes, Infinite in wisdom, there can be no error in their conception. Infinite in power, there can be no failure in their accomplishment. When God decides to do something, that's what happens. However, the truth that God predestined every event before time began does not, according to God, mean he doesn't care or that he's not involved reacting to us here. And I'm going to try to illustrate this with something that helps me understand this, especially since my dentist is in the congregation. If we, if we think uh, maybe a few years down the road, talking with Abby, and I notice that she has a cavity. Get on the phone, make a phone call, make an appointment, and I know exactly how the whole thing's going to go down, right? We're going to get there, I know where it is, we're going to get into the, the waiting room, and he's going to very kindly say hi, and then we'll wait till he's finished with the patient he's working with, he'll be called back, and... And then Abby's going to look at me with her little puppy eyes and I'm a little scared and then the shot and then the drill and then... So we kind of know what happens. We understand this. But does that mean that when it actually happens and we drive there and my daughter is sitting in the chair and she's looking at me with tears in her eyes wanting to hold me that I'm like, you know what, I made this appointment for you. I planned all this. I determined it, as it were, and I know it's for your best good, so just doesn't affect me, or do I, do I well up in tears in my own eyes as I watch her scared? I do. I do. And that's what God does, according to the Scripture. Just one example, we're not going to read it, in Deuteronomy 31, 16 to following. God walks through Israel's history, and he prophesies in detail exactly what they're going to do. And he says, you're going to walk away from me. You're going to sin in this way. This is what you're going to do. And then this is how I'm going to respond deeply to your future sin. It's not like, oh, this is what you're going to do, and so I already planned it, and who cares? Very different. So take these two concepts, and let's going to try to apply it to gospel life. And we're going to start with this phrase. When we change in our actions toward God, he, in order to remain unchanged in his nature, is required to change his actions in accordance with his unchangeable nature. Maybe I should repeat that and then explain it. When we change in our actions toward God, he, in order to remain unchanged in his nature, is required to change his actions in accordance with his nature. You can say, 
Josiah, that kind of sounds like heresy. What do you mean that God is required to do something? God is God. He can do whatever. Well, no. No. God is God, which means he can do whatever he wants to. God is always governed by his character. Can God lie? Can God break a promise? No. He can do whatever he wants to, but since his perfect character can never want him to lie, then he is bound, or if you will, free to always tell the truth. From a human perspective, when we change, God, in a sense, would be confronted with two options. He can change his actions in accordance to his nature, or he can change his nature to stick with his action. And I got another way worse and way more ridiculous illustration that helps me. And I apologize in advance for any cat lovers in the audience. So we have a room, small room. It has one door with one little window that we can peer in the room. And we stick a nice cat in the room. And we wait a few moments and we take a mouse. And this is a really cat from the farm. So, you know, just it's not an L.A. house cat that would see a mouse and be like, what's that? <laughs> this is a really cat. We throw a mouse in the room and we shut the door. How does the cat respond? cat is as happy as a lark, runs after the mouse, plays with it a little bit, kills it, eats it, and is now sitting in the corner of the room, curled up, digesting as happy as can be. We wait till just the perfect moment. We bust open the door, we throw in the Rottweiler, slam the door. How does the cat respond? Runs for his life for about seven seconds. Um, from the outside perspective, someone who's perhaps not thinking clearly could say, well, the cat changed. In one instance, confronted with one animal, it does a certain thing, and then confronted with a very different situation, with a different animal, like it does the completely opposite, completely changed. But of course, from the perspective of the cat, the cat is like, that's the most cat-like thing you could possibly imagine a cat doing. That's the most feline thing possible, to you know, want to eat a mouse and run away from a dog. But what's the point? What does this have to do with gospel life? In my thinking, like the cat illustration, you put a sinner in the hands of a God immutably furious with sin. Psalm 5.5, God hates all evildoers. And it is a terrifying, terrifying thing. He must cast him into hell and torture him eternally. And as kind and as merciful as you know God to be in Jesus Christ, he must judge the ungodly because he is immutably just. And it will be eternal because he will remain unchangeably furious at that sinner forever. Hebrews says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a consuming fire. But in the same hands of the same God, if before he dies that sinner repents, and obviously it's God who grants the faith and the repentance, but this sinner prays and is washed in the blood of God's beloved son by that same divine unchangeable law which forces God to judge sin. God must bless that repentant sinner. Why? Because he is unchangeably merciful. Now that God has washed away our sins, he has voluntarily, because of his grace, put us into a covenant with himself in which it is impossible for him not to bless us. If that sounds hard to believe, listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's impossible not to happen. 
When we pray and we live, this is what we appeal to. This is gospel living. It is appealing to God's unchangeable character. Lord, not be all else else to me, save that thou art. I plead with you, God, just be to me exactly who you are because that is gospel. You are good news to me. This is how the great men of old prayed and lived. Moses, the most humble man that ever lived, notice how he prays to God, Numbers 14, 17. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Saying, Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will, know by, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. It's not that we presume upon God's grace, but we do expect him to complete his promises. We expect him to react according to his nature in a dependable, expected, unchangeable, revealed in scripture way. This is why God does anything that he does. As we think about the cross and resurrection this week, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2.10, forgive me, Hebrews 2.10 says that God sent his son to the cross because it was fitting. It was fitting for the father to crush his son. It was the perfect act according to God's nature to reveal his justice by crushing his son and to reveal his mercy by saving us through it. Return to me and eh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling. We'll see how you've been doing lately, and I may return to you. God is not a man that he should change his mind. I will return to you. And faith is being certain. It's expecting and hoping fully that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I don't preach to you and to me. Repent and believe, and God, we'll see. God may forgive you. No, I preach with the apostles. Believe and repent and you will be saved. God will forgive you. He is mighty to save. I ask reverently. I ask fearfully. I ask trembling on my part, but I know how he will respond. When we read in Matthew 7, Christ doesn't say, ask and maybe it'll be given to you. Seek and we'll see. Knock and who knows. No. God is dependable because God is unchangeable. And I trust that in the moment that I make that decision and begin to lift my foot to take that very first step toward God, a step that he planned and enabled me to take from before the foundation of the world, he will already have made unimaginably large strides toward me. This is the doctrine that perhaps brings me more daily peace and comfort than any other. I don't know if you have ever asked yourself the question, one that Ezra asks in Ezra 9. How could God forgive Again, I who have sinned over and over and over and over again in the same stupid way, the same stupid sin, I've come to him a hundred times with the same tears, asking the same thing, just as ashamed, just as broken, and I never learn. And one of these times, God is going to say to me, enough. No, then God would be just like me. 
He is God and he does not change. He keeps no record of wrong. And you will find him to be the same God today, ready to forgive. And tomorrow, as you did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, when he forgave you. Gospel living is remembering this at all times. Remember, remember, God says to Israel, don't you dare get into your paneled houses, experience my blessing, and then forget me. So he made them bind his word on their foreheads, blue tassels on their garments, special foods, Every week on the Sabbath, every month, every year, every seven years, every 50 years, all the time. Because we forget. We forget. We're forgetful people. So just, I, I thought that gospel living was like, you know, living full of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience and self-control, right? Yes. But listen to, in 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, 5, listen to how Peter describes to us how we obtain those things. Supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. All the things we desire. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Notice this. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you don't love, if you aren't godly, why is it, according to Peter? You forgot. You forgot who God is. You forgot what God has done. Remember him for what he has done. Remember him for who he is. Remember the cross. Thank him for saving you from his wrath. Think of hell. And thankfulness will abound. Think of his tears and the joy of the Lord will come. Think that he died for his enemy and the Holy Spirit will lead you in love. Think of the fact that you were dead and you will be energized to evangelize. Remember your God. He is gospel. Let me close with one quick warning. One quick warning. Exhortation. If you're thinking, okay, I think I, think I got it. God never changes. He always stands ready to forgive. That's good news. I can go to him at any moment. And you know what? I'm kind of busy right now. Work is tough. I'll apply all this stuff in a few years. God will be the same then when I retire and the kids are out of the house, right? Well done. You have understood points one and three. But you forgot the middle point. God doesn't change, but we do. So two quick reminders. Obviously, you could die tonight. He doesn't change, but our life is a mist. God is not our grandpa in the sky. He's not to be trifled with. He is holy. His character is dependable, but that should cause us Christians to fear. Lest we prove, as Hebrews says, that we have not truly taken hold of Christ as we thought we had. We find that God is still furious with us. And number two, in our mutation, just like Israel, we can very easily get to the point in which there's no longer any chance for repentance. God does not change. He always accepts everyone who comes to him in Jesus Christ, but you have no guarantee that you will be able to go. Remember Esau, Hebrews 12? He found no place for repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. And in a place like Grace of the Valley, with so much light and so much truth, you can get hardened quickly here if you do not obey. You may get so far down the road of sin 
that God gives you the ultimate judgment, Romans 1. He hands you over to the most terrifying thing, yourself. And if he does that, there's no chance of return. Careful that you're not like the Israelites, who with every sin found themselves deeper in sin. If you find yourself on a downward road and not an upward one, I propose to you today that you are still dead in your sins and you need to repent and take up your cross for the very first time. And we can always run to the throne of grace and find the unshakable fortress that our souls seek. Let us be quick to repent, quick to find grace, and so live the gospel. Yes, it is true, Isaiah 40, God sits above the circle of the earth and we are just like little grasshoppers compared to him. But that, that great theology should not produce coldness. We should keep on reading the chapter. A few verses later, God talking about how big he is, says this. If I'm like this, if I'm this great and I'm this mighty with my ear, my eyes peering into every crevice of my creation, then why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh? God's sovereignty, according to God, proves that he cares. That God is big and God is everywhere and God is sovereign proves that God is here. Psalm 139. If God is with me everywhere, no matter what, then that means he is right here with his hand upon my shoulder and that thought is far beyond my comprehension. Praise his name. It's also true that we sin, we run away from God. God knows that already. Isn't that amazing? Even when God saved us, he knew every sin, past, present, and future, even the sins that I have yet to commit. We don't surprise him. So we know that he's going to discipline us in love, but we also know that he's going to grant us the grace to repent and through his discipline fall back into his mercy and not his judgment. Let's pray. Father, I, I think of how my Savior described you in the prodigal son parable at rock bottom the prodigal says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything but he comes to his senses and he arose and came to his father and while he was still a long way off his father saw him does not stay on the porch he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him Thank you for being that God. Thank you. We praise you for being who you are, a God great in compassion and mercy and justice. Thank you for doing what you do and thank you for what you have done in our lives in dying our death that we might have a new life. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for the promise. I, Yahweh, do not change. Return to me and I will return to you. Amen.